Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of Rhetoric. As with previously, the three of us have returned to provide, hopefully, some entertainment and some thoughtful dialogues that you might find useful. So today, again, we have Brad and Arun, and we are going to talk about wish list. How did that came about, actually? Because well, we put together a list of what we think were notable events for 2019, and then we'll put another list of what we think might happen in 2020. And next thing you know, we open the floodgates and everybody say, well, what about this and that? So we decided to crowdsource the wish list of 2020. We're going to call it Santa's wish list, but we want to be inclusive. So we're calling it just the wish list. Now, talking about inclusive and diversity, that is indeed one of the topics that we got the most responses on. Apparently, everyone feels very strongly about it one way or the other. But before we dive into it, I want to give Arun a big kudos. He is the one VC that actually does what he said he is going to do. And he posted a tweet recently that talked about the list of his founders. If you look at that, you might think that is actually the United Nations. Swedes, Brits, Canadian, Egyptian, English, Pakistan, French, Venezuelan, Indian, Malaysian, women, men, and hopefully he will add a Chinese there somewhere. But anyway, so welcome to our new episode. Let's talk about the list. Let's talk about what people want to see happen more in our circle of fintech and financial services. The top one, like I said, again, is around financial inclusion. We need a culture change across our industry. Um, we need a culture change in our conference circuit. We need true diversity, not tokenism. That's something we've been talking about for quite a while. Um, we also need to see more female and minority-led fintech unicorns. And to do that, we need more Aruns. Wow. Thanks, Theo. First of all, well done, um, staying awake and putting together this crowdsource list. Um, so we've, we've got an exhaustive list to go through. Uh, uh, so first of all, thanks for the, for the, for the kind words as well. And uh, all I have to say is some of the initial uh, putting together of this portfolio over the last five years, they were all instinctive. There was no conscious decision to say, okay, I've, I've chosen a Brit. Now I want to choose a Swedish founder or anything like that. We just, it was just pure meritocracy. We loved the guys or, 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 or the women leading it. And we just went in. Uh, but in another words, last... you weren't going grocery shopping. <laughs> That's true. But in, 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 in the last 12 months, probably 10 months, I mean, start of this year, perhaps, we've become more conscious. We, we, we try and give a little bit more of a brownie points where there is more diversity in the founding team. If it doesn't look exactly like our previous portfolio companies, then that gets slightly more preference within our IC. I think that's a conscious decision we have made. Uh, there are a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, uh, tweaks that we would like to make to the portfolio. Uh, we are still short on on the 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 the, the man woman ratio in the in the founders list. Uh, we are trying to close a couple of. Uh, women uh, founders led uh, firms. So hopefully let's see where it goes. But one thing I have to stress here is the fact that it, it, is, uh, it is not, I would have to say it is not evil to have a not so diversified portfolio uh, because oftentimes it's actually projected as that. I personally think it's, a, it's an unconscious bias that all of us have. Um, and, and especially with the investment business. 
It's a very trust-focused, um, uh, relationship-focused business. And trust comes with familiarity. So if you, so this, is, this is something all of us as social media people know, that when you keep tweeting a lot and when you keep uh, familiarizing yourself with something or if someone is very familiar with you, they tend to trust you a lot more. They tend to approach you uh, a lot more for different things. The same thing applies with investments as well. If I see an Indian guy, I feel, okay, there's a lot more in common with him. I tend to trust him a lot more versus if I'm doing it with a, with a Malaysian, Chinese, Pakistani, uh, Brit or whoever, right? So, it, so I think that is a little bit of that but it, it takes conscious efforts and introspection to overcome that. And it's not, I think this has to be done across several, all the industries, um, all the different, uh, as you said, events have to be more, more inclusive, not just men and women, but also inclusive of other um, people who look different, uh, people who come from different backgrounds because they all bring different insights altogether. Uh, I'll stop with that. Brad, do you have anything to say here? Well, I mean, I just, it, it, when you look at the numbers, the, the challenge of being a VC and being inclusive is that there's not enough opportunities for um, women, especially, but people across different um, geographies and different backgrounds to truly have access. You know, Theo shared a slide that she uses for her presentations um, for the past year. And, she starts out with saying anyone should have a chance to try to succeed regardless of demographics and social circles. Well, how do you get access to investors? How do you get access to take your ideas to market if you're not in those social circles, if you're not represented in the type of solutions that are already in market? The challenge I think with most VC firms is that they're more focused on male, white, even if they're not, you know, inclusive themselves, they're not really thinking about the market the same way and they're not going to find these people. The challenge in, in driving inclusivity in financial services is that it's, it's almost like it's not just economic, it's, it's so stratified with one class, right? With one way of thinking. And, and that's the challenge, I think, in, in the type of investment opportunities that you're looking at. And this is why, you know, the more global VC firms are, the more they actually get out and look at what's in the market and what the true needs are in the market and go down, you know, to the market level, literally like go to the physical market in different locations around the world and understand how people are living, how they're making payments and how they're struggling. This is the only way that you're going to get out of your own mindset and get out of your own way. Didn't Jack say that he's going to Africa for six months? Yeah. You know, <laughs> but, but, but think about it. I mean, you know, where, where is the next, you know, sort of century going to be coming from. There's going to be an explosive amount of growth. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think access, access is a big problem. Um, there was a news article that came out recently, I think it's on Harvard Business Review, that talked about 7% of board seats in private venture-backed U.S.-based companies are held by women. 7%. That's way less than public um, firms. And when, one of my guests would have been, because if you're a public company, you are held to more scrutiny, right? People look at it closer. The data is accessible, is available. And in this particular era, you know, 
right or wrong, they look at it from a PR perspective, so they feel compelled to up it. Whereas when you're a private company, that number is awful, seven percent. Now you think about our demographics is fifty-fifty. So what happened, right? So when you have not enough representation and board seats that drive the direction, the strategy of where the company is going, which then drives the opportunities as available or not available,、um, which is sad. And Arun, you you said something about diversity is not just about gender;、um, it's about backgrounds. It's also about age. We don't think、oh, about、yeah. that, right? You know, we think of a typical, you know, as an example, I always use twenty-three-year-old.、Um, Caucasian male living in Silicon Valley with a hoodie—that's the typical, you know, if you think about a startup entrepreneur. But that cannot be further from the truth. Or maybe that's why we end up with, you know, cases like Juicero, which I always use it as a joke. A seven hundred dollar machine—they can actually get so much venture funding, and people actually fund it. Like, really, how far away from reality do you need to be? Uh, absolutely. But one thing, one thing I have to mention is, I have been lucky to be a VC in London, because it's such a multicultural group of people. You see,、uh, you sit in a underground train, I mean the, the tube, and you hardly see anyone who looks like you. It's it's so refreshing to see that it's it's. And when when kids grow up in that environment, they tend to embrace and appreciate that kind of cultural diversity a lot more. Um, I think that's that's perhaps is what is bringing some of these very diverse deals through the door for us,、uh, because if you don't have diverse deal flows, it's it's hard to be making diverse investments as well. I think、um, I have to say, without taking any credit of Max, who is doing most of the uh, uh, most of the、uh, deal deal flow management for us,、um, I have to say that. Uh, uh, The location or, or London has has been a big factor for that. So I'll add that to my wish list. I wish that there could be more cities like that. It gets so sad whenever I hear about founders who say they have to move away from where they are. To a big city, so they can get access to capital, so they can get access to people who can understand them. I've had—I lost count of how many people I've had talked to. Even one, I still vividly remember. Two years ago, we were having a conference call. I kept hearing all these background. I asked him, "What are you doing? Do you want to call me back when you, you know, are not driving?" He said, "No, I'm going to be driving for three days because I am moving. I am literally lifting my family up. I am moving to Silicon Valley because I cannot have access to what I need here." And I think until we can solve that problem, until we can lift more local communities up to spur innovation, to spur capital, to get all that in, we're going to continue to have more societal divide. We're going to continue to see more division between different communities, between different classes in the country. Which I I, I will make it my wish list. I hope we can make that go away. With you know, may, may, maybe that's the key. Actually, is transportation. Um, I, I, just bear with me for a second. In San Francisco, it's very rare to see you know a, a VC in the Valley、um, come up to the city and take Caltrain, right? Or God forbid they get spotted in the Caltrain. <laughs> or, or you know, living in the East Bay and, and taking BART into the city, or you know what I mean. So in in London, it's a very different、um, sort of environment. So people do use the tube and they use trains because they have a great transportation system. But in the Bay Area here, it's it's awful.、Um, same thing. That's you know, why wouldn't New York be the same as London? Then everybody takes the subway. 
you know, do maybe VCs just take cars? I don't know. Or, or are they walking? But just, you know, that in itself is interesting is, is the mix of not just people that you're surrounding yourself with, but the community to which, you know, you literally rub elbows with that should make a difference. And it's not like New York isn't diverse. It's not like San Francisco isn't diverse because the Bay area is very diverse, but the challenge is, is, is changing mindset and what you see every single day. And I think, you know, a lot of that also is social economic and I, we, people have to step out and say, you know what, these programs are not a handout. These programs are not, you know, designed to simply take. And, and that's the challenge with financial services is that it's designed to take. It is designed to suck the marrow out of every single bone that you have in your body and simply take away and put it into this profit pool and push that upward. And it's just, you know, it's silly. Why can't we simply build more, invest in more that take care of more people and make this place that we call home a little bit nicer for everyone? Um, but I do agree with you. I think, I think we need a different perspective, a different lens. Um, to which one of the wish list uh, items that we received is that um, they wish that FinTech financial services can solve real problems for real people, right? Which allude to some of the things that we've been talking about the last 15 minutes, which is how can we create products that actually address the challenges that we have in today's world? How can we create something, for example, this one is for me, that address intergenerational tensions that we have? The way we live, the way we work, the way we retire, if we do, have changed, Right. And so the way different generations are living together or more generations are, are living together and working together has also changed. Why can't we have products address, address those changes? Right. Why do we, I think yesterday or, or maybe the day before I saw like big presentation decks that says whoever is ignoring the Gen Z's are going to be in trouble. Um, okay. I think whoever is ignoring the current challenges we have in the society is going to be in trouble. Why limit it into Gen Z? I have nothing against Gen Z, by the way, but you know, just saying. Um, so, and here's another interesting one. I want to see what, what you guys um, take on it is. Um, we need to focus on sustainability and climate-friendly use cases in fintech. Arun. Okay, so um, last week, I published an article on daily fintech calling out for innovation in the climate tech stroke fintech space, um, asking for top-down and bottom-up approaches to, to attacking climate change. The top-down approach would be having policy changes, regulations, capital allocations for banks, central banks chipping in with regulations and all that. The bottom-up approach would be more around how do we entice consumers, how do we gamify carbon footprint tracking, for example, for, uh, for consumers. And two days or three days after I published that article, MasterCard announced an investment into Doconomy. So Doconomy is basically, and they're just providing two credit cards. Uh, and the credit cards actually allow you to, to track your carbon footprint per transaction. So let's take the singles day, for example. Alibaba had about $38 billion worth of transactions in, in, in one day. And with, um, with uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday, I think together there was about $15 billion worth of transactions. That's like mindless consumerism in my opinion. And all, all we need, at least from, from, from my perspective, all we need 
to move to is to what uh, we start have kind of we started to coin this as conscious consumerism. I think as consumers, great, happy to you 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 earn the money, you earn the right to spend, go spend, but be conscious about what it's doing to the environment. So if you know that you've bought a product which has got a very negative carbon footprint, you can at least know or or learn how to offset the carbon footprint. There are several ways you can do that. So that's what the economy is actually doing. And that's why MasterCard has um, invested in them. And I'm really hoping to see some really cool products coming out of that next year. And, and I've, I've subscribed to the economy's uh, uh, card as well. And I think you should. It's, it's amazing. Am I going to get really depressed? <laughs> why? Why, why would you get to I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I one part one part of me struggles with a lot of the travels that we do, right? Because if I look back at at how many miles I've I've put I have uh, accumulated this year, it's actually a little guilty in the sense because like, oh my goodness, what am I doing to the environment? Um, see, that's that's really what they do, right? If if you see that there's a lot of uh, if 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 you've uh, breaking bad from a, a carbon footprint perspective, you can just put your monies into green green investments. So if you have disposable income, just put it into green investments. You you probably are not going to get the same kind of returns that uh, that that the traditional uh, uh, products are going to give you, but you at least know that you're okay on carbon footprint. And I think that's something that we have to all measure our future on as well, as well as money, because yeah, we're not gonna survive on money. We're gonna survive on clean air, clean food, clean water. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. Speaking of, um, so I had, um, I had lunch with uh, my, my kid and his little friends in school the other day, 10-year-olds. So think about 10-year-olds, what did they do? When they're at lunch, they should be talking about things, games, I don't know, holidays, what are you doing, what do you want from Santa, and all of that. Instead, they went into a discussion about climate crisis. The little child, 10-year-old, sitting next to me, one of my friend's best friends, he said, he was telling me about, you know, his trip to London with his family, and, you know, and then he started talking about the homeless people outside his hotel, and then he said, you know, Miss Theo, in the future, where we're going to be and when we grow up, countries are going to be fighting with each other because we won't have enough food and clean water and clean air. And he said, what am I supposed to do? I was like, oh, my God. He caught me completely off guard, I, I would have to say. And uh, I wasn't expecting 10-year-olds to, to talk about that. And so here's six little boys at the lunch table. They started talking about what it means. They started talking about what they need to do. 10-year-olds. I think the, <clears throat> the challenge uh, is going to be getting that to be the more predominant mindset or the predominant view that climate change is real. And the fact that, you know, we're sitting here in 2019 talking about, you know, all of the pollution that we've done over the past, you know, 100 plus years 
there are some things like in this, like in the state of California that we've enacted, you know, a lot of change to improve the environment. And it's never really going to be enough with what we actually do to the, the globe in terms of the environment impact that we have, you know, is, is Coldplay not, you know, taking a plane to a hundred concerts next year to do their album um, coverage going to change the world? No, but what they're doing is making a statement saying that, you know, there's a climate impact to a band traveling around the world with our gear. And I think it's important for people to know that. Well, imagine if that, you know, next generation of 10 year olds um, care so much that they continue to make actual change happen in everything that they do, and they actually are much more cognizant. But if you go back to, you know, the 60s and 70s and 80s, there still was a lot of people in the world that were concerned about the environment. And this is why we had climate regulation then. And this is why the, the problem isn't even much worse than it is today. But it's going to continue to be a challenge because you're having all of these economies sort of come online, if you will. And, you know, we haven't even seen the amount and impact of, of geographies like China, but at least they're doing something. And, and that really is the challenge with what we do, you know, in financial services is, I, I remember there was a discussion about, you know, well, what is, what is financial services, you know, what, what is their role in something like climate change? And you're seeing more and more companies actually take responsibility for the fact that they have an impact. And even if they're not, you know, producing, um, you know, coal or other type of particulates into the air, they understand that what they're funding and what they're investing in and what they stand for has an impact. And so I'm, I'm hoping that this next generation as they become leaders are actually going to change the way that the entire sort of corporate structure is really looking at something like climate change. And you know, that would be my wish list is that that next generation is sort of well on its way. Now add to that is uh, socially responsible capitalism. Uh, just one point before we move to that, uh, Theo, I have to say this because we've been talking about uh, banks being uh, pulled into regulatory uh, mandates uh, to manage the risks around climate change. And yesterday when I was, uh, the, earlier this week, when I was researching for this article on daily fintech, I noticed that SNP, they have an entity that focus on just ranking companies on climate change impact that they have. No one, I didn't know that, know that until earlier this week. So the infrastructure is already there. All we need to do is pull these strings together from a top-down perspective and make this change happen. I think next year, I'm really hoping this would, this would take off from a top-down perspective and hopefully from a bottom-up perspective as well. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'll let you talk about the next, next topic. No, I think they're all related, right? So, you know, we think of banks as being the big evil entity on the main street. That's, as Brett says, sucking the bone marrow out of people. And then we think of capitalism as being this big bad wolf, taking all the money and creating all of the unequalness in the society, if, if that's even the word. Um, and, and I think in a lot of ways it's true, but that doesn't mean that we can't change it. Right. And, and I think to my wish list is I wish we can do all these things more responsibly. Capitalism is not bad in by itself. Um, a lot of the Western countries are, in fact, capitalistic countries. Um, but capitalism to the extreme where we have it in the form in America, coupled with a lack of social safety net, 
that's when it becomes a problem because we are so focused on the metrics. We're so focused on how quickly can we flip the, the company around so we can get a quick return without regards to perhaps we should look at it from a long-term perspective, right? We're so focused on, speaking of metrics, um, how many likes and how many followers and how many of these things that we got on social media. But what do all these numbers mean if in the end of the day, they're not driving more value for our customers and not driving more value to the society as a whole? I don't think it has to be an either or. I think there needs to be some sort of a medium pendulum swinging back and saying, how can we do all these things in a more responsible manner? Um, and then another one that we got is about education, which is interesting. We see a lot of um, FinTech certification classes. Um, some of our friends actually do that. Um, shout out to Jimmy. Um, and uh, someone asked, well, you know, what if we have more FinTech degrees or we have other asks, which is, you know, can, why can we teach more about ethics? We talk about AI taking over the world, but shouldn't we educate the kids that are coming to college? What does that mean? How do they use technology, but use it for good? What does ethics mean to them when they think about implementing different things in a startup or in corporate? What does governance mean? So Arun, I see you nodding. <laughs> uh, the, there are a few points you mentioned there, which uh, some of them I agree with, some of them I disagree with. Um, and I'm going to be a typical overeducated Indian hypocrite who who basically uh, says education just uh, screws up <laughs> screws up your progress and all that. Um, I personally think, from a fintech perspective, uh, I, I, I really don't think we need a degree. I think we need to have specialist educational kind of forums um, where if I'm going to do a payments app, for example, uh, I've literally just a couple of weeks back, I had a really deep, deep dive session with a payments app who are using um, open banking to, to almost disintermediate the uh, major players on the payments value chain today. Uh, so once he's in play, uh, most likely Visa and MasterCard are going to be redundant. So, uh, but to get to that level of understanding, we had to spend a whiteboard session. And it was such an enlightening discussion. I think for someone who wants to get into the payment space, if I had a, a very focused group, um, uh, tech focused group to say, okay, this is what is involved in the whole payments value chain. Uh, now go innovate. I think that would be a really, really good uh, way of looking at it. But there, there, there is a flip side to it, which is sometimes people get creative when they don't know what the who the players are, they can just say, "Why are these? Why are there so many different players? I just don't need that. Forget it. I'm going to do it ground up. I'm going to get it right." And that is another way of looking at it. Um, again, uh, another example I have to say is I've, I see quite a lot of techies who want to do fintech and who've got amazing ideas, socially impactful ideas, but they have absolutely no clue about regulations. And that's an area where I see people really lack. Um, I think. Uh, uh, most of them wouldn't even know if they're if they're and and they get misled by their attorneys as well um, and uh, saying they don't need uh, regulations for their little startup. Unfortunately, when you're in um, in a business where there is a lot of money involved, money flowing through someone else's money is involved, you've got to be uh, regulated, and that simple concept is. Is, is missing and then people don't get that. I think some of these things, some of these are for focus groups to, to address some of these little little uh, buckets of entrepreneurs, budding entrepreneurs would help. Uh, for people who are outside of the system, I don't really believe they need a degree because 
um, they just need to read up. They just need to, there are enough and more FinTech books out there. Um, uh, I don't want to, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't have to name names there, but we all know how many FinTech books are out there. So people have to just go read up. I don't think there needs to be a degree there. That's my, that's my view. What do you think, Brad? How are we going to retrain people that are in banking today to actually, you know, create the value of the next couple of decades? Um, so whether you call it a degree or whether you sort of, you know, call it a sort of re-education, um, these opportunities aren't there systematically. And so, you know, I've, I've been associated with Brandeis's efforts to sort of educate in this area. And a lot of it is, is returnees, um, people that have started in their career and, whether they want to you know, remain in the bank or go out and do their own startup in the space. I, I think the challenge you know, is in banking, there is fewer people that actually know, you know soup to nuts what banking really is involved. They might know payments or they might know, you know how to, to run deposits in their bank or they may know how to do the marketing or a particular slice of technology, but they don't have a broader picture. And when you think about your college experience, you know, before you get a master's, you have a several years in your undergraduate that you have a broad-based education. And this is what's missing within financial education is that you don't have the ethics classes. You don't have the macroeconomic classes. You don't have the microeconomic classes. You don't have finance. You don't have the equivalent of banking. Banking is more learned than it is sort of educated in a university. And I think the idea of putting more of those classes in business schools and in a, a sort of, you know, 12 or 18 month program can do the industry a lot of good because there's going to be an awful lot of lost jobs for people that just don't have the skills for that next decade plus of where we're headed. And, you know, let's, let's re-educate an industry um, beyond books and actually like, let's put people to work. agree and I have two reactions to that. One is relation to lifelong learning, right? We talk a lot about multi-stage. We talk about how the way we, we do things now is different given the fact that we're all living longer. So instead of the old model where you go to school, whatever school it is, you go to work, you retire, people need to start doing well, study, work, take a break, go back to study, come back to work because whatever you learned 30 years ago cannot be applicable. I mean, I'll be honest, right? Looking at my own career path, I've changed paths so many times and I have to keep relearning and relearning and relearning. And so where I see the role of education in the future, however, whichever form is being delivered will be playing a role of, like you say, returning people, reskilling, upskilling, and getting people to adapt to a changing world. Now, the other aspect of education that I would love to see is teaching kids about financial literacy. We don't teach that. What do we do when kids go to college? The first thing, they see tables with big signs and advertising and, and all these little goodies that said, hey, sign up for the credit card, 0% interest for X months. And what happened? Next thing you know, oh, credit comes so easy. You spend, I don't have to pay money for it. And you keep spending, keep spending. Next thing you know, you end up with debt, more debt than you can pay back. And I would say before getting kids to spend, now some would say is, is the role of the parents, but I would also say it should also be one of the things we should teach in our education system. Teach the kids how to be responsible with their finances, what it means when you get credit. 
you do have to pay back one day. Wouldn't it be interesting if uh, one of your first semesters in college, you're required to take a finance class? Um, I know that you could do this much earlier because the community bank that I was a part of for many years did uh, a junior achievement type of class within, I think it was fourth or fifth grade or maybe a little bit older uh, to teach people basics about finance. But you, you don't really learn it until you're on your own. And I think you're not on your own until you're probably, you know, 16 to 18 plus uh, in terms of your spending. Um, so imagine that class would come in and, and they would talk about how you use your money, how money works, and they would actually introduce you to applications that would let you understand, you know, who's making money off you in, in terms of what you're doing. And instead of having cards, you know, at those tables, maybe those tables have applications that are helping you spend better, save better, invest. Um, if everybody started investing at 18 instead of having debt at 18, imagine how much better off we'd be. You mean you're talking about actually having something that can help real people in the real life? Amazing. Yes. What a revelation. We should make that as the grand wish for not just 2020, but beyond. How can we actually have real products that help real customers with whatever it is that they're going through? You can call it the lifestyle bank. Kudos to Max. You can call it, um, I don't know. Just, just real life, kudos to everybody. All of us have different challenges in our day-to-day lives. All of us have different needs. But yet, if you look at banking products today, or even fintech products, as much as they say they're different, in the end, I think they're all merging into the same thing. How can we have something that actually help better with gig workers, how they earn money and how they pay their bills? How can we have better products, real products that help women who suffer from opportunity gap, gender pay gap, caregiving gap, all kinds of gaps galore, but yet missing the real products to help them get to the finish line. Where are the adults in the room? So first of all, before I answer your question, we'll have to introduce Max to the audience. Max is my colleague at Greenshows Capital. Um, so For anyways, the time being, you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, you can say that. Um, uh, he's we've, we've been crowdsourcing ideas, and he was one of one of the guys who actually uh, gave me an idea about lifestyle banks. Um, I don't know what it looks like yet, uh, but I still think there are several ways banks can integrate better with my life. So, for example, um, in the last fifteen years I've been with Barclays, there's been only once, literally once, uh, that they have offered me more than a current account service, which was a personal loan, and that was timely. Beyond that, I've had several mortgages, remortgages, several credit cards, um, and and, and, uh, I I had cash in the account, which could have been invested. So they know all, they had all the data. They didn't bother to do anything with it. And they they, they knew uh, every time I moved to a new phone, they knew I was moving to a new phone. I had to put the pin code in and and get it out, get the app authorized and all that stuff. All they had to do was offer me a tech uh, uh, mobile insurance. They didn't bother to do it, and they know I'm aging, and they know I'm not saving enough. <laughs> they could have done. They just, they should do something about it. If I and, were your bank, I would actually have looked at all the charges you've made in fixing your computer and sent you a new Mac on your birthday. That's what I would have done. <laughs> But wait, that means that they actually know to need to do something and act on your birthday. Not because they don't have your birthday, 
they know everything about you, like you say, but whether or not they can actually get insights from the data and act on it, that's a different story. They haven't been doing that very well. They have not really been part of people's life. I think when when they get there, I think it'll be a really good, uh, really good place for banks to be. I mean, they don't have to worry about distribution channels. They don't have to be worried about worried about uh, becoming utility players. They don't have to be worried about tech giants taking over the distribution channels. They can just interact with customers, be part of their lives. I think that's perhaps what I would wish for the next next few years from banks. Yeah, I, I think that the the wish list for me would be to change the mindset of the largest banks in each geography to be more inclined to think about a a lifetime um, for their customer value. There's a couple of things on this wish list that people had said talking about sort of the internet of value or sort of building value and financial services sort of beyond today's traditional model. And you know, we're talking again about um, building an entire culture shift. And, and, and this is what I think is going to be required for, for financial services to go forward and not be completely splintered into, you know, I, instead of seven financial relationships, I'm going to have 20, right? How is 20 financial relationships going to be better than seven or two, right? And so, you know, open banking and a lot of these things on this wish list talk about interchangeability, interoperability, the ability to sort of move you know, money and applications and what have you on, on your whim, but who's going to be checking that there's not just a continuation of what our business model is today within those 20 apps that you're using or those 20 companies? Who's going to say that, you know, the new financial services sort of paradigm is not going to be the equivalent of WeWork, you know, or, or Juicero, since you use that example so much. Um, so, you know, just, I, I think the wish list is going back to ethics and going back to an actual um, business model that is actually around value for the customer. I don't know. I like, I like the word value. I like the word purpose. I, w- I would like to see that being a center of strategies more often, not just in one particular industry, but in all. I think in, in the way we conduct ourselves and the way that we conduct our business and the way we think about our customers that we serve. Um, and I'm going to end this with an epic wish which somebody put in is we should have an educational road trip stopping at different cities and share fintech wisdom with different institutions because after all the best way for innovation how we bring different ideas together how we become more diverse and inclusive is to be able to cross-pollinate idea and that requires dialogue it requires communication it requires actually talking to real people not just hiding behind the screen. So I would make that my grand wish list for next year is we have more in real life interaction with real people that we can better understand how everyone live and how we can all make the world a better place. Let's create a bigger, better, and bolder ecosystem for next year. And to that, thank you so much for listening in and have a wonderful rest of the day.